Hello and welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Scottish Independence Podcasts. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Life Podcast team and this week we're bringing you the podcast edit of a YouTube show which my colleague Marlene Halliday and I did on Independence Live's YouTube channel, taking a closer look at the implications of the Supreme Court case outcome and it's called A Constitutional Conundrum. had the Supreme Court judgment, we're now going to have a look at some of the fallout from that. And in particular, we've got two different events we're going to draw on. One is a Glasgow Southside Zoom meeting with Professor Aileen McHarg. And the other was an opposition day debate at Westminster called by the SNP on the topic of this is no longer a voluntary union, how do we leave? And the answer to how we, how we leave and how that, that conundrum can be solved it's actually quite straightforward. Westminster just amends the Scotland, the 1999 Scotland Bill to put the power of calling a Section 30 into the hands of Holyrood. That's the easy way to do it. And that's what that motion and, and amendment was about. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll not give away too much in advance, but I bet anyone watching us now will put odds on which way the vote went. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Just to apologise a little bit because the quality of sound from Aileen's end was just a bit intermittent and we, you know at various points in the meeting we stopped and when we tried to sort that out and we couldn't do it so it's not the best of sound but it really really is worthwhile focusing in and finding out what she has to say. We've got four main themes coming out of it so the first batch of clips they're all just very short is on that question of the right to self-determination who can hold a referendum? So let us consider then, because we've not done it yet, the result of the 2021 general election in Scotland, where this was a central campaign point. Well, I'm sorry for those that haven't been following this, perhaps, but, but we won. Not only did my party win the election, it won it with more votes than it has ever received in a Holyrood election. The, the results were quite, were quite clear. The SNP won that election in any normal terms. In fact, it was the best election result that we have had in terms of the number of votes that we received. And our colleagues in the Scottish Green Party, who stood on the almost identical platform in terms of the referendum, did exceedingly well as well. Together, the Scottish uh, Green Party and the SNP had 72 seats yep. out of 129 in that legislature. And they have formed a governing coalition in order to discharge their mandate. That is a bigger pro-independence majority than we had in 2011 when Alex Salmond had the first independence referendum. So the question arises, why was a response from David Cameron that was good enough in 2011 to that result not replicated in 2021 by the then Tory Prime Minister? Scotland is outnumbered in Westminster, so how can it have any self-determination? I agree with that. I think it's, it's difficult to understand a principle of self-determination that, that is dependent on somebody else agreeing to, uh, agreeing to exercise it. However, we have precedent for the UK Parliament agreeing to the exercise of self-determination not just in Scotland, but also um, in Northern Ireland. So, uh, yes, 
I agree from a principal point of view, it, it feels very odd, but doesn't make it impossible. If at the political level, that right to self-determination is, is accepted. The Scots as a nation have an undoubted right to national self-determination. Thus far, they have exercised that right by joining and remaining in the Union. Should they, that's us, determine on independence, no English party or politician would stand in their way, however much we might regret their departure. What have we come to, Mr Deputy Speaker? When the late Margaret Thatcher, for indeed she it was, the late Margaret Thatcher shows more respect for the rights of the people than the Scottish Labour Party. So, Mr Speaker, this motion is not a plea to our superiors from a subservient people. This is a clear statement from a sovereign people about the direction that our country intends to take. It is an opportunity for those who claim to support the British Constitution to allow that Constitution to do its job. I am very grateful, uh, while my honourable friend is getting straight to the heart of the material cost and opportunity cost of remaining languishing in this Union. He talks about how the United Kingdom just went straight on ahead with their referendum to leave the EU. Has he ever considered, as I have, that if you change, if you put the boot on the other foot and say, for example, England wanted to leave this union, who would block England leaving the union the way we are being blocked? Well, indeed, that is, that is correct. Clashing citizens in Ireland, Northern Ireland, I should say, have more rights than citizens in Scotland. The position of Northern Ireland and the fact that it is ignored always is really, really interesting. If you try to raise um, questions of, of consistency uh, with Northern Ireland, you're always kind of bobbed off with, well, Northern Ireland's different. And of course, it is different. It has a political history and a much more problematic political history, and there is the international dimension of it. And of course, their right is not, it's not the right to secede, it's a right to become part of the United Ireland, so it's quite a limited, um, a, a limited right. Nevertheless, there is a clear inconsistency there, and I think more could be made of that in political terms, because you know, a lot of the things that are said about um, about referendums in the Scottish context, you know, the once-in-a-generation thing, well, you're already beyond the, what's constitu what constitutes a generation in Northern Irish terms. It's only seven years, and we're already eight years on from the first referendum. You know, arguments about the need for uh, 60% support in the polls, or 70%, or you know, supermajorities, all of these things. Those don't apply in the in the Northern Irish context either. The trigger for a border poll is if it would appear, if it appears in the Secretary of State that a majority would vote for one, and um, it has been quite persuasively argued that any border poll would be on a 50% plus one basis, and it would be unlawful. It would be breach of the Good Friday Agreement if it were anything higher than that. So again, you know, why, why, is, why is there this inconsistency that's, that's accepted? Yes, there are differences in Northern Ireland, but why are they relevant? And that's the question I think is those questions are, are definitely worth uh, continuing to ask. A parish council in England uh, and a district or other uh, council in England, the, the, the tier of local government directly below the Westminster Parliament, has the power to organise a referendum on anything, including housing, the borders of its boundaries. But the Scottish Parliament doesn't have the power to conduct a referendum on a matter that it sees. 
But if the UK government, backed up by their better together allies, continue to veto or ignore the Scottish Parliament and Scottish Government, then it stands to reason that a different kind of electoral test will be needed. The 2019 general election, three years ago this week, was an effective, or you might even say a de facto, referendum on Brexit. The Conservatives sought a mandate to implement the hardest possible Brexit short of a no deal. The Liberal Democrats, none of whom appear to be here today, but if memory serves, the Liberal Democrats sought a mandate in that general election to completely overturn the referendum result on Brexit. And the SNP manifesto supported uh, a UK-wide second EU referendum with Remain on the ballot paper, while making clear that the best option for Scotland is, and always has been, independence in Europe. So political parties are absolutely entitled to put their proposition to the voters, and the voters make up their mind. Labour, apparently, intends to stand at the next election on a platform for sweeping constitutional reform, abolition of the House of Lords, a new devolution settlement, even though Labour established the current devolution settlement through a series of referendums. But their position now seems to be that a Labour government elected on 40-45% of the vote, maybe, of the UK-wide vote would have a mandate to completely reform the United Kingdom Constitution, to completely reform the current devolution settlement, but an overall majority of votes for pro-independence candidates in Scotland would not constitute a mandate for anything. I'm not sure how they make that add up. Who can call a referendum? Westminster can call one. England can, because nobody would be able to outvote them. Northern Ireland can because of the Good Friday Act. The Tories can do it. Labour could do it if they were in power. The SNP can't because they don't have the numbers. English county councils, as we found out from that Zoom with Aileen, they can do it. I'm guessing that maybe, you know, someone from Westminster government would say, oh, look, come on. It's a bit much to say that English county councils have the right to hold constitutional referendums, and Scotland doesn't. But they do have the right to have a referendum to look at where the boundaries of their uh, counties are. And, and it's a constitutional matter for their area of authority. And I think it's fair enough, actually, to sort of make a comparison with, well, Holyrood doesn't have the power, as we now know, to make any decisions on constitutional matters. The Supreme Court have seen to it that the door is closed on the idea of Holyrood having a referendum. So let's start looking at some of the other options. No referendum bill can be introduced into the Scottish Parliament. Unless and until the uh, Scotland Act is amended, uh, and since that seems very unlikely to happen, it means there won't be a referendum next October. Now, the Scotland Act could be amended in, in one of two ways, or yeah, two main ways. You could get another Section 30 order, um, as in 2014, to authorise a referendum on a one-off basis, or you could have a permanent amendment setting out the circumstances and uh, the conditions under which referendums in general can be held. So that would be similar to the situation under the Northern Ireland Act, which regulates the holding of referendums on Irish unification. It sets out conditions under which referendums can be triggered and uh, a minimum time period of seven years between referendums. So we could have an ad hoc amendment or uh, we could have a more Kind of permanent, more detailed regulation of the issue. 
So that makes it the achievement of, of independence primarily a political issue. It, it becomes a question of persuading the UK Parliament to legislate for it. The polity that we live in of the United Kingdom is a multinational state made up and based upon serial acts of, of union that have given it quite a unique character. And it is something which up until very recently we had assumed required on the consent of the people in the component nations of the United Kingdom to be part of. We now have a situation following the Supreme Court judgment where it seems that that is not the case. That it is not possible for one group of people in one nation of the United Kingdom to consider reviewing the relationship with the others without their consent. And that means that the idea of it being a voluntary union of nations is dead in the water until such times as the law is clarified or fixed. And it is in an attempt to clarify and fix the British Constitution that we actually present this bill to the House today. Because if you pass this motion, it will then allow for a situation for the leader of my party to do what the leader of the government ought to have done, and that is bring forward amendments to the 98 Act to allow the Scottish Parliament the power and competence to be able to do the things that the Supreme Court ruled it could not do, and which everyone thought previously it was able to do. And we're here talking about Scotland's future because we're stuck. We're in a constitutional conundrum. We've got a situation that we can't get out of. We've got a situation that there's no way out of. And that was proven by the Supreme Court judgment. The Supreme Court judgment effectively said there is no current democratic way for the people of Scotland to get out of this union, even if they want to. Even if the people of Scotland which they continually do, vote for parties that support having an independence referendum, even if they keep doing that, there is no way out of this situation without the UK government giving a Section 30 order. There is no way out of this voluntary union of nations. We are stuck in this voluntary union, whether we like it or not. We're stuck in this. And the opposition, in fact, both sides um, from the, the Labour Party and the Conservatives seem to think it's some sort of oddity, some sort of unusual situation that people in this place would be keen to talk about constitutional reform. <coughs> in some odd way, apparently, the SNP are the only ones that have got any interest in constitutional reform in this House. From a party that's passed the recent Elections Act, changing the way that people vote, that's changing the parliamentary constituencies and reducing the number of parliamentary constituencies, from a party that is desperate to abolish the House of Lords, I mean, we've heard that before, um, from, a, from a party that has previously said that they would abolish the House of Lords, from parties that have spent decades and decades tinkering with the Constitution, making changes, and are still doing it, are still making constitutional changes, are still talking about the um, repeal of EU law bill, are still talking about Brexit and what a wonderful bonus it is. That is all constitutional change. The only difference between our party talking about constitutional change and their parties talking about constitutional change is that we are doing it consistently pointing in the same direction 
all of us standing up fighting for independence for the people of Scotland. Yeah, that is a constitutional change we are speaking for with one voice. Yeah, so if you listening to Kirsty there, you'll have seen where we got the title for this programme from as she she used it, you know, a constitutional conundrum. And I was just quite struck with it. She's she says, Well, we're stuck. And that's it, isn't it? We're stuck. I mean, I'm sure we'll find a way and a way will emerge and we'll, we'll we'll find a way out of it. But at the moment, we're stuck. And I was quite struck again when she said, you know, the other parties in the town seem to think it's strange to want to talk about constitutional matters. But the Labour Party have just said, you know, they're going to abolish the House of Lords. Um, mm. That'll be in their next uh, manifesto. That Scottish interests can't do anything, or or if they want to talk about it, they get you know people's responses. Oh, you're always talking about constitutional matters, and or, mm-hmm. or and as she says, well, the Labour Party are talking about abolishing the House of Lords, but we have heard that before from them. I think the first time yeah. they said it was 1921, <laughs> when Gordon Brown was was a young man. Um, let's see how the vote went. The eyes to the right, 42. The nose to the left. 265. Right, so that was 42 for the motion and 265 voted against it. But it was really good that they were all there listening, wasn't it? Oh, no, wait a minute, actually, they weren't. What really annoys me, actually, is that 260 of those 265 people do not represent Scottish constituencies. So they're voting against the wishes of the people of another country. It's outrageous. What about the claim of right? There just seems to be so many different perspectives on this, so many different views from people who absolutely think it's the answer to people who dismiss it completely and everybody else is somewhere in the middle. Drawing from both of these events we've been looking at and also tapping into what I thought was a very well-delivered speech by Leah Gunn-Barrett at the Time for Scotland event, let's just have a look at the sort of range of views. Personally, I haven't made my mind up about, you know, just how crucial or important the claim of right is. In modern times, obviously crucial and important way back in 1689. But yeah, for, for me, it throws up more questions. So see what questions that get thrown up for yourself. Now, much of this is bound up with the notion of the claim of right for Scotland. And we had a big debate, and as colleagues may remember, in, in 2018, actually again with an opposition day motion put forward by, by my party, when there was a surprising degree of support from all sides of the House for the claim of right for Scotland. The claim of right simply says, by the way, that it asserts the right of the Scottish people to determine the form of government best suited to their needs. It was a declaration uh, formulated in its current form in, in 1989. It's been referred to ever since. And actually, in the last time round, and I'm glad to see one of them present, we had the then uh, Secretary of State for Scotland and the current leader of the Scottish Tories stand up in that debate and say that they had endorsed and supported the claim of right for Scotland. Well, you cannot have the claim of right for Scotland and a situation where we don't live in a voluntary union and it can never be exercised. Because it is remarkable how uncontroversial 
this assertion has been over the years, to be honest. I mean, from 89 uh, onwards, I mean, we had it, uh, it, it, was the, it underpinned the 97 uh, legislation which led to the, the referendum and devolution. Uh, it, was, it was asserted in the Kalman position, uh, Commission that followed that. It, it, it underpinned, obviously, the 2014 uh, uh, referendum, and, and it was asserted in the Smith Commission that came as a, as a consequence of that. And, and we've never had it seriously challenged. In fact, I've been debating these matters about the Government of Scotland. I had it up the other day for 45 years since I was a, a student uh, at Aberdeen University and campaigning in the first devolution referendum in 1979. And in all of that time, it has been understood that the claim of right exists up until now. So it is important, I think, that we reassert it. Aileen, is, is there a mechanism within the claim of right where the Scottish Government or the Scottish people could enact independence? The powers of the Scottish Parliament are limited by the Scotland Act. There's no alternative source of powers that they can draw upon or, or you know, or, or, or refer to. So I, I understand the argument that's made in relation to the claim of right that this is evidence of a right to rebellion. Or that, that that was part of pre-Union Scots law. There's certainly grounds for supporting that position in the claim of right itself. But there was a contested, a contested constitutional doctrine pre-Union. It is highly uncertain that it survived the Union. And even if it has survived the Union, None of the details are worked out. There. You know, what is a right of rebellion, a residual right of rebellion for the Scottish people? How is that operationalised? Who who puts it into practice? What are the trigger conditions for it? Who decides? So there's a whole load of steps that would have to be filled in that would be hugely, hugely controversial. So that I just don't think that that historical material is nearly as powerful. As some people think it is or hope it is. Hi, thank you and good evening. Today's uh, UK Supreme Court decision is not only irrelevant, it's illegal. Because the Scotland, Scotland's constitution is still in force, in principle and under international law. There was never any need for the SNP leadership to ask another nation's court for permission to do something we've always had the power to do for ourselves. The principle of the sovereignty of the Scottish people over any government or parliament was upheld in the 1689 Claim of Right, which was inserted into the 1707 Treaty of Union by the Scottish negotiators as a precondition of the treaty and of the union. It was ratified by the two parliaments as a guarantee that the Scottish constitution would remain in force after the UK was created. In fact, recently, King Charles III swore allegiance to the claim of right and Westminster has acknowledged it on three separate occasions in 1989, 2012, and 2018. 
By contrast, England's unwritten constitution is based on parliamentary sovereignty over the people, which is the polar opposite of Scotland's popular sovereignty. Westminster is not sovereign in Scotland. The people are. The claim of right gives the Scottish people the power to sack a government that fails to uphold their rights and interests. The Convention of the Estates, a tribunal of Scottish citizens, had the power to depose a corrupt government and replace it with one that served the common good and upheld the people's sovereignty. I don't think there's a plausible argument that can be made that as a matter of domestic constitutional law, Scotland has a legally enforceable right to become independent. I know there are a variety of arguments that are being put forward in this area, most recently arguments based around the claim of rights, but in legal terms, these are very weak arguments as well as historically very contentious, and it's very, very unlikely in my view that you will ever persuade a court. In the, in the contemporary constitutional order, the people of Scotland have a legal right to secede from the UK under domestic law. And in any case, they come nowhere near, you know, even if these fragmentary legal principles and precedents mean anything, they don't come anywhere close to establishing a clear, a clearly set out pathway towards independence. In 1707, Scottish Parliament was not dissolved. It was put into abeyance. It has now been taken out of abeyance and the laws that were pertaining to the Scottish Parliament back in 1706 to 1707 were not repealed. So they, they, they are still alive. In legal terms, it, it's a highly controversial statement to say that the contemporary Scottish Parliament is just the reincarnation of the pre- Union Scottish Parliament. I mean, it's institutionally nothing like it, and its legal provenance is an act of the UK Parliament, not some sort of historical historical route. And it's also problematic to say that everything that was in existence pre seventeen oh seven somehow survives unchanged. I mean, some of it was changed by the Treaty of Union. It just it just was, and the Treaty of Union. States, but it is permanent. It doesn't contain a mechanism for its own for its own dissolution. And we're talking about centuries ago. You know, the law. Some aspects of the law have continued in force, but large parts of it, and particularly our understandings of how we should be governed, what the legitimate principles of of, of democratic government are are fundamentally different to what they were in 1707. So I think there's all sorts of technical and also principled objections to the idea that somehow we can just revise the 1707 constitution and somehow put that into effect. So as we said, a really wide range of views there and some contradictory views, some assertions that we don't know what the evidence is they're based on, some questions certainly would arise. So I think this is something we will return to. On the one hand, 
if it's got the possibility of helping us get where we want to get, then then it's definitely worth looking more closely at. And on the other hand, if it's a non-starter, why are we putting all yeah. this energy and effort into it if it's yeah. leading us down a blind alley? I just don't know what the answer is right now. Yeah. I mean, we all feel frustrated about where mm. we are at the moment in the independence campaign. I completely understand posing a question, is this the way out? And now it's got to, it is the way out in some people's minds. Of course, that kind of, in a way, answers that frustration. You know, it kind of taps mm -hmm. into what we're all feeling very strongly. Yeah. But it's got to be backed up and, it, you know, it's got to have real possibility of going somewhere. Otherwise, it's a blind alley. Yeah, but it could just be a magic wand as well. So yeah. Definitely worth taking a closer look oh, at. Ab yeah, ab absolutely. It's not all doom and gloom, though, as our last collection of clips will suggest there are lots of other avenues that we can be exploring. The thing that's really struck me over the past few years, you know, UK politicians, of course, have been saying repeatedly, no, you can't have a referendum. But that has always been justified in terms of timing. You can't have a referendum now for X, Y, and Z reasons. Apart from, you know, on the, the fringes of unionism, there hasn't been any rejection of the principle that at some point, whatever that might be, at some point, it is possible for Scotland to become independent. Now, and you can find plenty of political statements, political political precedents to support this. And, and, and that's important. This UK constitution is not a wholly legal constitution. It is partly a political constitution. So political precedents and principles and statements do matter. Nevertheless, the UK constitution is, as things currently stand, entirely silent on the circumstances in which we can succeed or what the precise pathway towards secession might be. We're just in a, a situation of complete legal silence and political disagreement. We're trying to find a way forward at all of these issues and trying to design a way to deal with the situation that we are finding ourselves in. Now, my colleagues have repeatedly asked government ministers from the Prime Minister downwards, how do we therefore now get that independence referendum when we are supposedly and notionally in a voluntary union? We have not had any real answer or response to that, save for one thing, a duck. That was the response that I got when I asked the Secretary of State for Scotland at the Scottish Affairs Committee, how do we do this now? And he said the response was the duck test. I think what the Secretary of State was trying to suggest and present was that we would just know when we got to the situation position when a referendum on independence would be reasonable and legitimate. And of course he now has that fabled duck test if it looks like a duck and if it quacks like a duck, honourable members know how the rest of this goes. So I think what he was saying was that if it looks like it's time for an independence referendum, if it sounds like it's time for an independence referendum, then it will be time for that independence yeah. referendum. The only thing is he didn't actually tell us how that democratic test would yep. be met. I presented a few options to him which were all rejected. So it's now incumbent upon this government to tell us how we get there. They've conceded that there is a way to an independence referendum, albeit by the, the guise of our aquatic feathered friends. What they now have to do is to sit down reasonably and constructively and tell us exactly what that test will be. Mr. Deputy Speaker, I want to talk about um, ducks. Thank you to the member for um, Perth and North Perthshire for mentioning the, the duck test. 
He says that there is a duck test in relation to the referendum. That is apparently the position of the, of the front bench over there. So if it looks like it's time for a referendum, and if it sounds like it's time for a referendum, then it's time for a referendum. Here. Now, I hope the Deputy Speaker will not mind me saying the party doesn't have a very good track record on determining whether or not it's a duck. Because if it looks like a party, and it sounds like a party, <laughs> it's in fact a work event. <laughs> if it looks like a drive to Barnard Castle, and it sounds like a drive breaking um, COVID rules, it's in fact completely legitimate and perfectly normal for okay. people to do that. Eyesight definitely test. not eyesight an eyesight test. test indeed, and definitely not against COVID rules. Mr Deputy Speaker, I have got some questions for the Minister about his, about his plan for how Scotland could choose to determine its constitutional future. I have got some questions about exactly what he said in, in this. And, you know, I will move away slightly from the duck test. He said what we need is we need all of the parties. We need all of the parties and we need, all of, we need civic society in Scotland to come forward in order to have a referendum. Now, thinking back to the <coughs> Brexit referendum, uh -huh. is it possible that not all of the parties supported having a Brexit referendum? Is it possible that that dramatic constitutional change was not supported by every single party in this House? I, mean, I think it is possible that that was the case. I think it is possible that every party in this House did not come together and support constitutional change. I think it's possible that in 2011, prior to the Scottish Parliament election in 2011, the Conservative and Unionist Party didn't put in their manifesto that they would support an independence referendum. I don't think it was in the. I assume it wasn't in the manifesto of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. I think it's incredibly odd for the government minister to suggest that every party should need to support something before does he mean the Labour Party and the Conservatives and the SNP? Does he mean the Labour Party and the Conservatives, the SNP and the Lib Dems? Does he include Plaid? Does he include the SDLP? Does he include the DUP? Does every party across the UK need to have in their in their manifesto that they're going to have a referendum on Scottish independence in order for that to happen? What does he mean by every party? Does he really mean every party? It would be great if he could provide some answers to this. Does he mean every party that gets over a certain percentage of the vote? If so, what's that threshold? What is the threshold? Do they have to have it in their manifesto or do they simply have to make the agreement afterwards? A petition dissolving Holyrood and have an election in Holyrood. Civil disobedience. There are multiple political tactics that could be considered. It wouldn't be impossible, I don't think, to engineer a dissolution of Holyrood if the Scottish Government resigns and blocks the formation of an alternative government within 28 days. General election would have to be held. So you could treat that one as the you know, as a plebiscite election. But again, that has all the problems with the voters being willing to go along with that, would the other parties go along with it, would you be punished for it? And since the power to legislate for a referendum is now firmly at Westminster, you might get objections that, that you know, it doesn't matter what the Scottish Parliament says anymore on this, on this point because it's reserved.
but you know, multiple potential political avenues are available. There isn't one pathway, uh, and there's no guaranteed pathway. So what is to be done? Well, first of all, we can endorse our historical claim of right, as Canon Kenyon Wright said. Some may say no, but we are the people, if I paraphrase, and we say yes. So I hope that SNP members will sign my colleague Neil Hanby's St Andrew's Day Declaration, EDM 633. The Independence Convention requires to be supported. It's necessary for two reasons. To bring together the elected, democratically elected representatives of Scotland, our MPs and MSPs. It's required, first of all, to rebut that it's not the UK Supreme Court that is sovereign, it's the democratically elected representatives of the people of Scotland. And secondly, to drive home when this motion fails and is defeated tonight, that it's not this Parliament but the elected representatives of the people of Scotland who are the voice democratically elected of the people of Scotland. So I hope that members in the SNP benches will support the call for an independence convention. After all, it was a call made and supported by the First Minister in February 2020. We're now approaching three years on. It's time that convention was delivered. Thirdly, they should support the call for a plebiscite election, one that could be triggered next October and deliver us our referendum, the no ifs, no buts referendum that we were promised by members on the SNP benches. That can be achieved by collapsing the Scottish Parliament. A member of the SNP has already set out a way there. That could be done and could deliver the referendum that the people of Scotland were promised by the First Minister and others that would happen in October of next year. That must be done. And finally, support must be given to all demonstrations, all international legal actions, all actions peaceful and democratic to drive forward the position that the people of Scotland are not prepared to supinely accept diktat either from a UK Supreme Court or from a Tory government unelected by the people of Scotland since 1955. This isn't a constitutionally regulated or recognised concept. There are precedents for single issue elections. You have to go quite a long way back to find them, but there are precedents. Nevertheless, this is this is a political tactic. This is a way of putting pressure on uh, on the UK Parliament to come to the UK government to come to the table because it's a political tactic. You know, I think it's maybe a bit of a mistake to get too worked up about the details of what of, of what matters or of what counts as a as a, as a mandate. The SNP and the other uh, pro-independence parties are entirely free if they want to to campaign on a single issue. They can't guarantee, of course, that the other parties or the voters will go along with it, but you know, it might. And if they get support on that basis, they are entitled to see their view as having been endorsed. Clearly, also, I think this is a project, you know, it's suboptimal compared to a referendum, but suboptimal for reasons of, of, of clarity uh, over the process and the results. It's a classically risky tactic. The electorate is not all that favourable towards the independence case compared to the, the franchise that would apply for a referendum. So it's suboptimal, but when all that's available to you are political tactics, you know, it is a political tactic that can be used. If 
it turns out that support for the SNP or the SNP plus the other pro-independence parties was sufficiently high, then all of these quibbles about what constitutes a majority and you know, where people are really voting for independence, all that would become mere quibbles. It wouldn't really matter if support was sufficiently high. Is there any way that, as First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon could recall all her Scottish political representation and create a, a convention assembly and dissolve the union? That would be UDI, so Unilateral Declaration of Independence. UDI, UDI is not unlawful under international law. Now, that, that might sound a little bit contradictory because I just said there's no right to secede under international law, but a right to do something adds no ban on doing something. These are different things. So there's no right to secede, but at the same time, the unilateral declarations of secession are not contrary to international law. The problem with UDI is that, as the ICJ has clearly recognised, there is no obligation on any other state to recognise the UDI. And independence is only effective if it's recognised by other states. So you, you, you can only become an effective independent state if other states are prepared to recognise you. So, I mean, sometimes BDIs will be effective, sometimes they will be recognised by other states, sometimes they're partially recognised, i.e. they're recognised by some but not others. In some cases, they're not recognised at all. I mean, Catalonia's UDI is, is, is obviously um, the big uh, warning flag there. But even if it was a, you know, even if we had a sort of partially successful uh, UDI with partial recognition, it even pretty much guaranteed that the UK would not recognise it. It took a very long time for the UK to recognise what was then Rhodesia's UDI. As our neighbour and as our biggest trading partner, all of those things, that would be a real problem. The other real problem is that we almost certainly wouldn't get back into the EU because Spain would definitely veto us. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Well, I think for that reason, the Scottish Government has always ruled out UGI. By, by whatever route you get to it, the First Minister has always ruled out EDI because she thinks it would not lead to effective independence, and I think she's right on that. Our colonial status explains the ongoing plundering of our resources, the feudal system of land ownership, the loss of four million Scots who were killed, displaced, and deported to overseas English colonies. It explains the vast wealth inequalities, the persistent poverty, the absurdity of an energy-rich nation having fuel poor citizens, and the lowest state pension in the developed world. It explains decades of Westminster governments we did not vote for, and it explains why Scots don't know their own language, history, and constitution because the colonial power has suppressed them. And it explains why a UK Supreme Court believes it can tell Scotland what it can and cannot do. This is a question that's come up quite a bit. It's been thrown up by the Supreme Court, this question of, are we a colony? And the reason it's important is because if we are a colony, then we have certain rights. 
But if we're not a colony, we don't have those rights, which is interesting. Being a de facto colony, does that mean we can go to the ICJ? So two points to that. One, we can't go to the ICJ because there's no right of individual petition to the International Court of Justice. Only states can take cases or UN organs. So there's no there's no direct pathway to the ICJ. Uh, but even so, you know, I don't think it's plausible to say that Scotland is a de facto colony. I mean, there's there's an important legal difference between colonies and parts of the UK, which is that if you are part of the UK, you're represented in the UK Parliament. Now, I accept, of course, that that representation because of the asymmetry of the UK is very imbalanced. But nevertheless, there is a fundamental difference between being subject to the decisions of the Parliament that you have no say whatsoever in its deliberations versus one that you are at least formally a part of. And we have the Scottish Parliament. So we do have a high degree of internal self-determination. So I, I, I think that the de facto colony arguments are not very plausible. I first came across that kind of distinction last year sometime. I thought I must find out a bit more about the whole Quebec independence movement and the decisions that arose from, from that. They nearly made it in the second referendum. But after that, the Canadian federal government asked the Canadian Supreme Court to look at the question. And I think it was out of that that this whole distinction of a colony arose. And if you're a colony, you don't have things like representation in the overall parliament or wherever the um, power lies. You can't send representatives to it. There are no examples of you you and your um, people in you know holding positions of power and authority in, in that way. So I think that's part of the th that's part of the reason why Scotland can't be described as a colony because you know we've got representation we've got Scots who've been prime ministers we've got plenty of Scots in positions of authority so it's worthwhile thinking about and 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 just sort of seeing where you come out of it because again I think you know emotionally it's very easy to just kind of slide over and to say well we're a colony and and actually it's if it's not true then it's another blind alley. It is, although there is a certain irony in if we're not a colony, that means we have fewer rights than if we were, when our right of representation, we're just going to get our voted every time, as we've just seen, 265 people are going to come out the wood, yeah. well, we're probably sat in the bar for the entire debate, they're going to come out, vote against us and go back to the bar. Yeah. That's where our emotions get hooked into that and fair oh god fair enough you know i mean it's so frustrating but lay that aside a little bit and and then just think well we may well be wishing now that the, the group of scottish commissioners who put together the 25 articles of the treaty of union in 1707 we may well wish that they hadn't done it the way they did but they did and there was a group of english commissioners scottish commissioners and and there was agreement and there was assent to it by our parliament in Edinburgh and English parliament in, in London. And yeah, we can go, God, I wish they hadn't done it, but they did. It is frustrating, but as you, you know, as well as we keep saying, no point in heading down blind alleys. We need no. to put our energy and our focus wh wh where it can come to, you know, a, a, a good outcome. The Yes movement needs to be careful not to get too caught up or too het up about the whole 
process of where we are and, and, and more where we aren't at the moment because mm. the main job is what it always has been it's to persuade only a few more percent but we do have that percentage of Scots still to persuade and we're getting there and ironically I think the ruling from the Supreme Court has helped that you know it looks uh, so far it looks like there's been a you know a significant shift but we need to shift it some more and that's what our job is and that's a point which Aileen summed up very well, I thought. You lot are the political activists, not me. You have to decide, work that out. There is no single prescribed route by which you can guarantee that outcome. But it's not an outcome that is impossible, legally impossible to achieve. It's one that is going to have to be brought about by political pressure, political persuasion. And I don't have a better answer than that. Ireland used to be part of the UK and it is no longer. We, the UK has a history of secession, not a history of secession that I think anyone would want to follow. That does indicate is that it is possible. And that is the bottom line, isn't it? If they want to yeah. avoid all this hassle, get a section 30 on the table. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I hope people have enjoyed this. And yeah, on the one hand, there's a process and we do have to find a way through it. But on the other hand, we also need to persuade that last 5% or so of Scots to come round to yes. And, uh, and we need to get on with both of those and, and, and not let the one um, block out the sight of the other. Okay, but we're starting the new year with polls saying that the independence movement is the majority. So that's got to be a great start to the new year. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see where it goes from here. If you go onto our website, you're also able to sign up for our monthly newsletter and we'll let you know what's, uh, what's going on. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next Friday with another podcast, which will be the bits and pieces for January. Gosh, it's at the end of January already. How did that happen? And can we just say a big thanks to Yes Glasgow Southside for sharing their Zoom event with us much appreciated. If you're in a Yes group and you're doing events or discussions that you think would be of wider interest, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Bye now.